The Guardian. Hi, it's Nicola Davis here. The Science Weekly team are taking a bit of a break. Well, except me, of course. And so today we're going to bring you something from the archive. And I've got to say, this is one of my favourite ever episodes because it combines two things I love, chemistry and crime fiction. I sat down with Dr Catherine Harkop, author of A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie. I've also recently spoken to Catherine about her new book, Death by Shakespeare, The Science Behind the Plays. So do look out for that podcast episode coming up in the near future. We've put a link to both books on the podcast webpage. We'll be back next week with a very special two-parter. See you then. Chapter 1. I go to Styles. The strong public interest in the Styles case is over now. But because the case was so famous, I have been asked to write an account of the whole story to prevent any more sensational rumours. The marriage between crime fiction and poison is a long and brutal one taking a lead role in some of the world's best-loved whodunits. She led us round the house to where tea was being served in the shade of a large tree. And, as we approached, John's wife, Mary, came to meet us. I'll never forget my first sight of Mary Cavendish. She was tall and slim, with wonderful dark eyes. But how much truth is there in these tales? And why do so many of the genre's best-loved authors turn to a poisonous plot? I suppose somebody must have stepped on it. Yes, my name Somebody must have stepped on that coffee cup and ground it almost to the powder. And the reason that they did so was either because it contained the strip. I'm Nicola Davis. This is Science Weekly. Who better to ask about all this and more than Dr. Catherine Harkop, chemist, science communicator, and author of A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie. <coughs> um, it's recorded, pre-recorded, so if there's anything we want to do again or... We can do it again. We can do it okay. again, it's no problem at all. Um, <sighs> That's so reassuring. And this is... I sat down with Catherine in the studio this week and started with a well-known classic. So, Catherine, perhaps we can kick off with looking at perhaps one of the best-known murder mysteries involving poison, which is Strong Poison by Dorothy Sayers. So, let's talk through the plot on this a bit to give our listeners a bit of a background. Okay, so there is someone who is out to kill a specific person, and it is a, a quite a contrived way of going about this it manages that that there are two people the killer and their victim having a dinner together on the presumption that they're both chums when no they're not (laughs) one of them is desperately out to uh do in the other one and so they have this glorious meal together and they all share the same food they eat the same meal they drink the same wines and yet very shortly afterwards one of them becomes very very unwell and by very very unwell 
we're talking projectile vomiting, you know, really quite nasty. And within a few days, this particular individual is dead. So the suspicion eventually comes round to the other person at the dinner, not unsurprisingly. And yet, how can you eat all the same food if it is poison? How can you kill someone and the other person be completely unaffected? So this is the conundrum that is set up in, in Strong Poison and dealt with extremely well by uh, Dorothy L. Sayers. So they're sharing the same food, they're mm-hmm. sharing the same drink. And you have two people at the dinner table. Yes. One of whom, shortly after shuffles off this mortal coil. <laughs> Absolutely. So when it when it comes to that sort of thing, I mean, what's what's the first question that pops into your head? Is it, it is it the kind of poison that can be used or is it I'm at the unfortunate stage now because I write a lot about poisons that whenever I read a detective novel, anyone who's looking a bit pale, has a bit of a sniffle, that's it, you know, a little marker goes on the page saying, like, uh-huh, what's that? So it's the symptoms that you would look for. Uh, you know, even today if someone suddenly dropped dead with no obvious signs of you know they haven't had their head bashed in they're not being stabbed or shot you would start to look at well you know what are the symptoms around their death and the symptoms um, around this particular death in strong poison the the vomiting um, and all of those kind of rather grisly characteristics uh, it could be food poisoning but well no the other guy ate the same food so you start to look down actual poison roots and all of the symptoms point towards arsenic. Now, the arsenic is perhaps the most easily detected poison. It's the one everyone knows and mm. it's everyone expects, oh, you know, golden age of crime fiction, everyone was dropping dead with po- <laughs> with arsenic poisoning. It wasn't quite the case, but there were quite a few arsenic deaths. So, it's been around for a long time. Its um, effects on the body are well known and the ability to be able to detect it has been around since 1840, I think. And it's a very simple chemical test um, that is, I believe, described in the book. I can't remember exactly how much detail they go into, but it's, it's called the Marsh Test. And it was used for almost 100 years. It was so effective. And so through this test, you're able to determine not just that there was arsenic present, but actually how much. We all have arsenic in our body because arsenic is part of our environment and so we absorb it into ourselves. So you're always looking for the fatal amount and they find it in this guy's body and, okay, so they start to wonder, okay, so it's arsenic, but still, how can this other person eat arsenic, tainted food, presumably, and yet survive? Because they look into the timings of everything and it has to be that meal. So it's the the ultimate alibi for our murderer Absolutely. is that even though the the poison is uh, is not a, a a subtle one, no, no, the, not by uh, any standards. The, the method of introducing it uh, was quite a head scratcher. Absolutely, it's almost like a huge red herring. Look, it's it's arsenic. It's just labelled in big neon signs. This is arsenic. This guy's been killed with. There must be a poisoner. So we come back down to to I suppose what Sherlock Holmes would say, which is when you eliminated the impossible. Whatever remains, however improbable, must be the truth. And so I guess we come down to the fact that they both must have eaten the poison. Absolutely. And it it does seem very improbable because arsenic, everyone knows, it's, it's highly toxic. You really don't need to eat very much to be very dangerously ill. So they start to look into how someone might protect themselves against a poison. Now we can protect ourselves against infection by vaccines and things like that. So is there a way that you can protect yourself against arsenic poisoning? And in the 1930s, when this book was 
written, it was believed there was a way of protecting yourself against arsenic poisoning. Now, if you're at home today and you're worried about your partner you know, heavily insuring you or something and your tea tastes odd, it all comes down to what used to be known as the Styrian defence. It was a genuine legal defence that was used in 19th century England when people were dropping dead from arsenic poisoning. And they would find arsenic in the body, um, but they had to explain how it got there. So it all came down to the fact that in Styria, which is a region of Austria, people chose to eat arsenic in very, very tiny quantities, sublethal amounts, but they said it improved their health and their looks. So it was almost like, not an aphrodisiac, you know, it made the men appear a little more muscular. Actually, that was fluid accumulating in the muscles. It's called edema, not a good thing. Uh, The women became more curvaceous, so they were more attractive. Again, that's edema. And they had absolutely beautiful, flawless complexions because they were killing all the bugs that would cause spots and blemishes. So these people appeared to be in absolutely rugged health. And so the craze spread across Europe to America and people take tiny little amounts of arsenic for their health. And so in the dock, when you're accused of killing your spouse, it was usually a spouse, you would say, well, no, 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 it was nothing to do with me. Obviously, they were an arsenic eater. They clearly just took too much or the dose that they were given at the the pharmacy was wrong. Nothing to do with me, gov, honest. And it worked about 50% of the time. It's not a reliable way of getting off poisoning someone. But it does mean that theoretically, what they thought was these styrians were building up an immunity. There were individuals who were wheeled out almost like fairground attractions, and they would be given huge amounts of arsenic to eat in front of audiences, and people would sit around and watch nothing. In this way, it was thought that your body would be able to build up some sort of tolerance to arsenic. So the idea in Strong Poison is that this particular individual who's plotted this meal very, very carefully, he happily eats everything, knowing that it's laced with arsenic. But because previously, for months, he's been building up this tolerance, he can take it and it won't affect him. Now, if I remember rightly, um, the, the, the hero of the story, hero of Dorothy Sayers in general, Lord Peter Whimsey, proves this by secretly getting hold of some nail and hair clippings of the murderer. So just talk me through that. Why why was that necessary? Well, arsenic has a wonderful property that it's very, uh, it attaches very strongly to sulphur. And there's an awful lot of sulphur in your hair and your nails. So arsenic, when you ingest it into your body, it just gets attached to the hair as it grows out of your head. So as long as you can get hold of some hair or nail clippings, you can actually trace someone's arsenic dose centimetre by centimetre. Your hair grows about a centimetre a month-ish. So forensic scientists will just chop up the hair into one centimetre sections and they can plot your arsenic exposure over however long your hair is. Uh, and hence prove if you've been munching on the stuff. Absolutely, if you've had a a natural exposure to it perhaps or if you've had one sudden dose very close to the end of your life near the root of the hair. I see, and so the million dollar question here is does the plot hold up? Is this possible? By 1930s science, Dorothy L. says it is absolutely spot on. She did her research, she knew what she was talking about. However, um, (laughs) more modern theories of what was going on with these styrians who were eating arsenic, the theory is that actually 
they were eating quite big lumps of it. So these lumps of arsenic were passing through their body before they got absorbed into the bloodstream and could do any actual damage. So even though they looked as though they were eating huge amounts, it just went straight through them. However, because of the meal and this arsenic, you can't have gritty lumps of arsenic in your dinner. Someone's going to notice Someone that. might smell a rat. Exactly. They're going to go, oh, you know, it's lovely, but push it to the side of the plate. Um, so you'd have to um, disperse it, dissolve it somehow throughout the meal, which means that you would be absorbing the full fatal amount. And the arsenic would either kill both of them or neither unfortunately. So it doesn't quite hold up, but for its time it was spot on. So not quite up to you today's standards. A striking face. Not just conventionally pretty, much more than man. Damned attractive. More coffee, my lord? My lord, can that really be the face of a poison? From one queen of crime to another. Nio Marsh was also quite keen on using poisons in her stories. One of them is Death in Ecstasy, which is quite a quite an intricate plot. She did go in for intricate plots. There's a lot of detail. And this one this one revolved around um, a slightly unusual sort of church service in which someone got bumped off whilst sharing a, a cup of, of wine. Yeah, like the communion wine goes round the group and it, it gets to its victim and um, it proves fatal. And again, we have another scenario where you've got a group apparently all sharing a glass, which of course gives Roderick Allen, the inspector, a bit of a headache, I think. Absolutely, because the poison used was cyanide. And cyanide, I mean, another classic poison, um, cyanide's probably been used to kill more people deliberately than anything else. It, long and horrible history with, with cyanide. But the characteristic of cyanide is how quick it acts. It is minutes, perhaps not quite as quick as in Nio Marsh, but it's certainly within 10 minutes, with a decent dose, you would expect to be dead. So there's not much time you know, by the time you've gone round a group of people, surely you'd have people just dropping like flies. But it only seems to affect one person. So the, the conundrum in this case was how it could be added to the communion cup at the right point with no one noticing someone just, you know, pouring a white powder in amongst the, the wine. So, I mean, how... How do you do something like that? I mean, is, is it is it just a sleight of hand trick or is there more to I think to it, it is a, a sleight of hand trick and a cigarette paper that dissolves or something. I mean, it's all, it's completely feasible. It just seems rather unlikely. Well, about as likely as, you know, people being bumped off in a church service, I, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not that unlikely um, in, you know, the realms of crime fiction. But in terms of the sort of sleight of hand and dissolving into the cup, it, it, yes, it is practical. It, it would be possible. Again, don't try this at home. It's not good. I suppose one of the questions that sort of crops up in this kind of case is, how on earth did someone get hold of this stuff in the first place? I mean, I'm pretty sure today, if you pop down to the chemist and said, oh, you know, can I have some cyanide, please? They might raise there at least one questions. of their eyebrows. Yes. I mean, you'd hope. Yeah, it was astonishingly easy to get hold of cyanide and a whole host of other stuff. This is, again, 1930s, I believe, maybe 1940s, 
But yes, astonishingly easy to get hold of this stuff. And very helpfully, Naomi Marsh actually gives a recipe for making it at home. I mean, it's wonderful stuff. I, I, I we re- won't be repeating that. Here. No, we won't be. Re- well, buy the book. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's on the bookshelves. I'm quite astonished that she got away with it because I read it through and it's like, well, I, it's not a particularly good method. You might get some cyanide out of it, but you probably won't get very much. So that's my kind of, okay, phew, that's not terribly practical (laughs) in those terms. And to be quite frank, you'd probably kill yourself in the process because you're not going to be doing it in a fume hood. But anyway, you could just buy cyanide in shops. It was sold as an insecticide. So if you had a wasp's nest, you would just buy some cyanide salts and you'd mix it with an acid, which would release hydrogen cyanide. I mean, extremely toxic, terrifyingly toxic. And you would obviously, you know, hold your breath, close the door and leg it until all of the wasps were dead. It's terrifying what was possible 60, 80 years ago. Thankfully, the same cannot be said for today. Over the threshold came two youths dressed in long vermilion robes and short overgarments of embroidered purple. They had long fuzzy hair brushed straight back. One of them was red-headed with a pointed nose and prominent teeth. The other was dark with languorous eyes and full lips. They carried censers and advanced one to each side of the torch, making obeisances. They were followed by an extremely tall man clad in embroidered white robes of a druidical cut and flavour. He was of a remarkable appearance, having a great mane of silver hair, large sunken eyes and black brows. The bone of his face was much emphasised, the flesh heavily grooved. His mouth was abnormally wide with a heavy underlip. It might have been the head of an actor, a saint, or a Middle West American purveyor of patent medicines. After this short break, we'll hear more about cyanide, including a real-life trial. In the doc, he said, ah, well, she was very fond of apples. <laughs> Which, oh, you can imagine <laughs> the jury laughing at this point. And they worked it out that actually she'd have had to have eaten thousands of apples to get enough pips, to get enough amygdalin, to get enough cyanide. We'll also hear how one of the genre's greatest writers used fact in her fiction. So she stole her plotline, hook, line and sinker, from a a real-life case. So yes, it is horribly believable. I'm sure it was accidental in the case, in the original case, but Christie turned it into a a very successful murder mystery. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Science Weekly. I'm Nicola Davis. He was of a remarkable appearance, having a great mane of silver hair, large sunken eyes and black brows. Before the break, we heard Dr Catherine Harkup's assessment of Dorothy Sayers' 1930 classic, Strong Poison. We also picked apart the cyanide-filled world of Naya Marsh's Death in Ecstasy. into it when a flicker of light, the merest paling of gloom, announced the return of the priest. While we were on the topic, I thought it was time to dispel an age-old cyanide myth. 
I feel like this is also a good moment just to, to pop in a little segment here, which is why eating apple pips won't kill you. Because I feel like there's a, a sort of little aside um, here, which often gets trotted out when people talk about cyanide. Absolutely. Cyanide is, it's only two atoms. It's one of carbon, one of nitrogen. And from a chemist's point of view, it's an extremely useful little unit to do chemistry with. And therefore, it just crops up everywhere in nature, in labs, it's everywhere. So lots and lots of compounds contain a cyanide unit, but not every one of those molecules is that toxic. It all depends on how easily you can snap off this little cyanide bit and make hydrogen cyanide. Now, in apple pips, there's something called amygdalin, which contains this cyanide unit, and very helpfully, humans have an enzyme in their gut that will snap off this cyanide unit and turn it into hydrogen cyanide gas. Now, obviously, I'm sure there are people thinking, well, I've swallowed an apple pit before. <laughs> and they're still and, standing. And they're still standing. Because <laughs> remember, it's only 10 minutes. You'd have noticed by now. <laughs> um, it, it's in very, very small quantities. And the hard shell of the pip normally protects you from most of the amygdalin. But it, it, it's in everywhere. I, I had the fun task of working out the lethal dose of marzipan once just because marzipan contains almonds which contains amygdalin and therefore it contains a source of cyanide if you look hard enough it, it's everywhere i have to ask how much marzipan would i have it's about eat? 35 kilograms you're wow. in no and that's in one sitting Poor. you seriously it's not the cyanide that's the issue <laughs> it's death by sugar pretty much absolutely <laughs> or just sheer volume of stuff someone um sent me a message after i tweeted this saying that's a labrador in marzipan <laughs> it is ridiculous so don't don't worry about apple pips don't worry about marzipan and other foods it's fine so so Naimash might have got away with the the cyanide uh, being slipped in in a cigarette paper but if she tried it with apple pips oh no no oh, someone genuinely used that as a legal defense They'd killed their mistress, and it's a horrible story, they killed their mistress with cyanide that they bought from a, a pharmacist, which you could in the 1890s, and added it to her beer, and she collapsed on the floor, died of convulsions. And in the doc, he said, ah, oh, well, she was very fond of apples. <laughs> which oh, You can imagine <laughs> the jury laughing at this point. And they worked it out that actually she'd have had to have eaten thousands of apples to get enough pips to get enough amygdalin to get enough cyanide but this guy's defense counsel was known as apple pips for the rest of his legal career <laughs> because it was just so ludicrous so uh, yeah don't worry about that regard mon ami the chimney piece of the lamp is broken in two places only and yet the coffee cup next to it is ground almost to the powder I suppose somebody must have stepped on it. Yes, my name Somebody must have stepped on that coffee cup and ground it almost to the powder. And the reason that they did so was either because it contained the strychnine or, which is far more serious, because it did not contain the strychnine. Now, for our third and final novel, there's only one author we can turn to. The one, the only. Agatha Christie, of course. The best, in no, my humble opinion. No show would be complete on crime without Agatha Christie. So, this one we've gone for a golden oldie, 
Mysterious Affair at Style. The original and possibly the best. The, the one which saw the introduction of Hercule Poirot, no Indeed. less. And so in this story, we've got a, a, a wealthy woman being bumped off, as so often appears to be the way. What, what happens, Catherine? It was her first novel and it almost became the stereotype for Agatha Christie. She wrote a huge range of plots and situations. However, in The Mysterious Affair at Stars, you have the big country house. You have the elderly, older relative who's rather wealthy. And you have the younger generation who's very poor and would quite like an inheritance at some point. And then this old lady marries a much younger man. And the whole younger generation are suddenly, oh my God, all the money's going to go to him. So it's really not very surprising when in the early hours of one morning, this woman is found in horrific convulsions. Fortunately for everyone concerned, not so much for uh, Mrs Inglethorpe, who's dying, but fortunately for everyone else, Captain Hastings happens to be staying in this house. And even Captain Hastings, who, God love him, is not the sharpest tool in the box. <laughs> I, I adore Captain Hastings, but he's not, he's not Poirot. <laughs> so he calls in his friend Poirot, who happens to be in the village. He's not the sharpest tool in the box, but... He does recognise that this woman's convulsions are absolutely characteristic of strychnine poisoning. There can be no doubt. So even from almost from page one, we know that this woman died of strychnine poisoning. The big conundrum is how and who administered the strychnine. And of course, Poirot is in the village, and so he can put together all of the complex red herrings, ignore all of those, and figure out who done it. I just say it's unusual in this one that we know what killed them quite quickly and it seems to come down to uh, some very clever chemistry actually you'd have to be quite quite scientifically minded to be able to crack this one you would have to be very up on your chemistry which fortunately Agatha Christie was at the time she wrote this book when she was working as a dispenser in uh, a hospital and this was a time when all the drugs were made up by hand you didn't have pre-packaged pills or anything like that you mix together the correct hopefully amount of the the drug and you made the pills you turned out the creams etc etc so she knew how to measure out an appropriate dose of strychnine she also knew what not to mix strychnine with and we all know now there are certain drugs you can't take with other drugs because they interact with each other and the same was true then so she was able to play on her knowledge when she was writing this, I mean, she's sitting in a dispensary surrounded by this stuff. And she, she went to town. She used three drugs to kill one person that quite literally overkill. <laughs> but it is brilliant how these three drugs interact with each other to produce the desired effect in this case, which is the horrible death of Mrs Inglethorpe. So with Mrs Inglethorpe, we have a, a, a conundrum, which is that they've tested all sorts of different Uh, fluids that she might have consumed. Yes. So there's a meal, there's a coffee cup, there's a hot chocolate cup. There's many, many ways she could have been given strychnine. Unfortunately, she had all of those many hours before she actually developed symptoms. And symptoms with strychnine usually take about 15 minutes, half an hour, depending on how heavy your meal is. And this was hours. So that was the, the real conundrum. Also, as was not... That's unusual in 1920s England. This house is absolutely chock full 
of strychnine. It's astonishing how much of this stuff is They're just poison laying around. traps. These houses, absolutely. <laughs> There's something that, like the the gardeners shared for killing rats or something. There's a blue bottle of the stuff in a drawer upstairs. It, it's just everywhere. So you, they're absolutely spoilt for choice as to which particular dose was given and when. But it, it just none of these facts actually tie up unless you're Poirot and you can work <laughs> out that you've got these other drugs delaying the symptoms and um, making what seems to be an innocuous source of strychnine. I just thought of that sentence as I was saying it, an innocuous source of strychnine. There is no such thing. Do you that way? There was one source of strychnine in this house that was actually on Mrs Inglethorpe's bedside table. She was prescribed it as a tonic. These little old ladies in the 1920s, if they were feeling a bit down, the doctor would give them strychnine. In, you have about a lethal dose dissolved up in about a pint of water and they'd take a, a spoonful or two every day and this would invigorate their nerves and yes, strychnine will invigorate your nerves but not in a good way. It sounds a bit like the, the first example we had when people were eating arsenic and not realising it was actually doing them an awful lot of damage. I mean, seriously, before antibiotics, the horrendous stuff that was given to people in the name of medicine, it's, I'm astonished that anyone lived beyond about 1900. <laughs> it is true. All this stuff riddled in their houses, I'm amazed yeah, that anyone actually managed to survive at all. But So here we have an innocuous sort of medicinal bottle of strychnine absolutely and, and that that's what done it was it that's what done it but the initial assumption is that well okay because everything was made up by hand maybe someone got the decimal point in the wrong place and they just gave this woman too much except that she died with the last dose so clearly if it was a fatal amount it should have killed her much earlier but of course um poirot is on hand and realizes that there's another drug on her bedside table and this is something called bromide powders these powders were prescribed as, they're kind of sedatives, uh, sleeping powders, that kind of thing. The brilliant thing is, from the point of view of crime writing, is if you mix bromide powders with strychnine, you get a chemical reaction that causes the normally dissolved strychnine to crystallise out. And you get these little crystals of strychnine bromide that settle to the bottom of the bottle. And if you forget or intentionally don't shake the bottle when you administer your dose, you get your fatal amount of strychnine in the last spoonful. So someone could have added the bromide to Mm. the strychnine at almost any point. Absolutely. So this is how Christie's really good at manipulating timelines. You think, well, it must have been done on that night at dinner. Well, no, no, this was planned months and months before when no one can remember where they were or what they were doing. So it just opens up the field again to all of these possibilities of who could have done it. So again, quite a plausible plot. But in this day and age, one would hope not. Well, it's a plausible plot in that when uh, Christy was studying for her dispensing exams, there's a book that she, I can't confirm that she studied it, but it's very likely. It's called The Art of Dispensing. And it very specifically says, do not mix strychnine with bromide powders because this was done and a woman in England died in the last dose. So, Christy, and if you read The Mysterious Affair at Styles, it is cut and paste from this particular book, almost word for word. So she stole her plotline, hook, line and sinker, from a, a real-life case. So, yes, it is horribly believable. I'm sure it was accidental in the case, in the original case, but Christy turned it into a, a very successful murder mystery. 
So this queen of crime fiction is also the queen of crime fact. Diagnostic criteria that we are using. So people who have only a sort of mild case of autism spectrum. But whether or not there is any truth in the tale, what is it about poison that makes it so attractive to authors? Something I put to Catherine. There is something horribly fascinating about poison. When someone gets shot, it's very obvious why they die. Or if someone gets stabbed or strangled, you you can understand that. And you can understand also someone lashing out in the middle of an argument and just the unfortunate consequences that someone dies. What is more difficult to understand with poison is it's sneaky. You have to think about it. You have to plan it and you have to acquire these things. You have to administer them. And with the possible exception of cyanide, poisons take a long time to kill people hours and all that time you are faced with someone usually in agony and that is a long time to reflect on what you've done and to maybe backtrack and and think about it so there is something i think particularly callous about poisoners and in history poisoners have been given special extra punishment if they've been found guilty very very little sympathy for the poisoner and which i think is understandable but also if you read agatha christie just the sheer variety i mean, there are many many ways of killing people and crime writers have explored a staggering number of them but poisons are oh, you you can slip it in tea you can inject it just opens up so many possibilities for plot as well as manipulating timelines and delaying actions and making sure someone else is you know out of the way and framing other people so it, from a, a plotting point of view i can imagine that poison is a really attractive way to go Special thanks this week to Catherine Harkup. We'll include a link to Catherine's A is for Arsenic, The Poisons of Agatha Christie in the episode's description on the Guardian website. We'll also include a link to Catherine's wonderful musings on our Guardian blog, Notes and Theories. I'm Nicola Davis. This is Science Weekly. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.